right. Hey, welcome. Good morning, everybody. So glad that you guys are here. I love looking out and seeing faces. I know we've got people checking in online, whether you're live now or throughout the week. Welcome to you. Glad that you guys are here. Uh, but it's the inside faces that I love seeing, getting that feedback. It's so hard to, to preach. I used to, during the time of total lockdown, we preached to a smiley face. And that was really difficult because although he was approving most of the time, um, he didn't give me a lot of feedback. So anyway, uh, glad that you guys are here. Hey, real quick, a couple things I want to add on to what Pastor Gabriel um, mentioned. Number one, thank you for your faithfulness in giving to our video upgrade project. It was an amazing thing that happened last week. Last week, like anybody, it was a week of ups and downs. I had an entire day that I spent pulling a toilet out of the building to remove some things that were shouldn't have been down there. Um, typical ministry day, right? But not what I expected to happen. Um, but in the midst of all that, I love how faithful God is, and he'll just give you these little winks to just let you know that he's with you. The upgrade project on the cameras is an example of that. I was, um, when we buy things like that, when we upgrade, we have to pay bills. So on one monitor, I have the invoice of what the amount is. And, and uh, Jeremy, our tech guy, came to me and he said, oh yeah, by the way, we need this and this and this as well. There's always the little things that you have to, to buy, unintended things to make it all work out, and I was kind of just sitting there looking at what had come in, what had been donated by you and your faithfulness to that project, and the invoice of what everything cost us, and the last two digits, exactly the same. It was $99 off exactly of being exactly the same, what was given and what the costs were. And it's one of those things where you're looking at the invoice and those two digits just jump off your face going, see, I'm with you, and I'm in this. Yeah, Coincidence? I think not, right? That's what Pastor Craig would say. I think not. One of those, just a nice wink. God just saying, I'm with you. I'm here. It's good. We're in this. And it's just those things that give me so much comfort. So um, the other thing is, just really quick, um, the every... Saturday, we go buy Panera Bread, and we get a donation from Panera Bread, things that, are, that were unused throughout that day. We bring them in, and we give them out during the food pantry and things like that. Last night, I personally was picking up from Panera Bread, and I came away with four large 50-gallon-plus garbage bags full of fresh Panera Bread. And how many know when you're trying to avoid eating carbs and that thing... <laughs> Having that sit in your car, talk about temptation. Here's the point, though. We've got people, as Pastor Gabe said, we've got people in the food pantry uh, that are coming by after service, but we will never be able to go through that much bread. So Thanksgiving's coming up. It's Thursday. If you're having friends over, relatives, if you're, I know we're not supposed to do some of that, but if you're making stuffing and you need some bread, we have a lot of it is what I'm trying to say. So stop by after service, grab me or Pastor Gabe, come by the kitchen and, and take some bread home with you. This, this isn't half of an eaten sandwich, okay? This is a full loaf of artisan breads and baguettes, and it's amazing. So, so take some off our hands, help us out, and, and let's get that out in the community. If you know somebody who could be blessed by it, uh, let's do that too. So, all right, let's get into the message. I ran over my time um, first service, and then I realized, well, it's not my fault. Pastor Gabe went way long on the announcements. 
So, and the Broncos don't kick off until 2, so i got plenty of time. Hope, hope you guys are ready to, to dig in. Hey, we're in, we're in our series called Blameless, a study in the life of Job. And if you're new with us in here or you're new out there online, we are traveling through the book of Job, start to finish, verse by verse, in many cases, chapter by chapter, book by book, talking about what that means to us. The book of Job is one where people usually go, ah, I'm just going to skip that one. Because there's not anything really, usually that's positive in the idea of, well, it's about perseverance. It's about suffering. It's about trials. Okay, none of which sounds like anything anybody wants to particularly dig into, right? But the amazing thing about that is that it's so hopeful. It's such a hopeful book. And every chapter that we go through is more and more reasons to be hopeful. And I think that's why it's there. Now, my my idea as I look through this, kind of the lens as I look at this whole entire book of Job, is the fact that God is using these things that happened to Job to elevate him, to bring him, to call him out of where he was. Where he was was fine. He was happy with where he was. But God's calling him into something higher. And sometimes in order to do that, we need a little bit of a nudge. Sometimes we need a lot bit of a nudge. And the nudge doesn't always feel good, what we would think feeling good ought to be. But this is where we are in the book of Job. So picking up where we left off last week. Last week, last couple weeks, we had seen that Job, Job basically is kind of, he's on the ropes, really. He's had one friend after another just berating him, berating him with what they think is going on in his life, trying to accuse him of some hidden sin in his life, trying to accuse him of all kinds of things that he didn't do. And he knows in his mind he didn't do these things, but at some point we just get tired of fighting the battle. We get tired of proclaiming, I didn't do it, and finally just say, all right, maybe I did. This is kind of where Job is. He's sort of on the ropes, and he's just been beat up. His first friend, Eliphaz, really gave it to him. Then Eliphaz steps out, and his new friend, Bildad comes in, and Bildad picks up where Eliphaz left off, except not quite as gently, and just jumps right in, just just pounding on Job that you had to have sinned, because Bildad, Bildad has this very straightforward theology. It's called the theology of retribution, and basically that says, if you are good, God will bless you. If you are bad, God will smite you or harm you. It's pretty straightforward. If you're good, good things will happen. If you're bad, bad things will happen. And it's, it's not entirely wrong, but it does not paint the full picture of who God is and who we are in his kingdom. And that's the error. The theology is not that he's entirely wrong. It's just incomplete. And so it's kind of the difference between saying, if you sin, you will suffer. Okay, so most people probably wouldn't argue that. If you sin, you will suffer. And maybe not today, but at some point, that's going to happen. But it's the difference between saying that and saying, if you suffer, you have sinned. That might sound like fine details. But if you suffer, you have sinned is not always true. And this is what we have to wrap our minds around with. In short... Saying that 
if you sin, you'll suffer, and if you suffer, you have sinned, it basically assumes that our relationship with God is based on us, based on what we do or what we don't do, what we do right, what we do wrong. That's where the relationship comes from, and it takes the goodness and the mercy of God out of the equation and just focuses on the judgment of God. Follow the rules, you'll be fine. Don't follow the rules, you'll be punished. It's pretty straightforward there, and that was the thinking in all of Old Testament times. It's the thinking that many people are entrenched in still today. Does not paint the fullness of who God is. The idea that you get what you deserve might be accurate, but the question is, who gets to determine what we deserve. The idea is who gets to determine that? Do you get to determine what you deserve? I know we all think we know what we deserve, but who gets to make that judgment? Is it the devil? Is it God? This is the struggle of Job. Sometimes what we see as an affliction or a trial or something that we're going through, a punishment, we see those times as always bad. Affliction, trial, perseverance. Again, these words don't ring joyful in our minds most of the time. But I think what we need to see is that those things could actually be something that God is using for our good and for his glory. Not the common way that we look at those sorts of things, but I want to challenge you to open your mind and look at this differently. Remember, remember I quoted from last week, and I'm going to bring it up again just by way of of review here a little bit. Um, Jesus was asked by his disciples. They had been walking, and they came across the man who was blind from birth. And in John chapter 9, verse 3, they ask him, the disciples ask him, who sinned? Okay, we see that he's afflicted. He's clearly, he's not in a good place, blind from birth. Who sinned, him or his family? Okay, in their mind, it's a straightforward question. He's afflicted, therefore, somebody sinned. They've been walking with Jesus, and they still had this mindset. Remember what Jesus' answer was, though? John 9, 3, Jesus answered, it was neither that this man sinned, nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. That still blows my mind. So that, so this man, blind from birth, probably had to beg for a living, certainly had a hard time of, of life, was that way for his own good and to give glory to God? hard to wrap our minds around. The problem is, let me rephrase that. If you knew that whatever affliction, and we're all going through an affliction or a trial or something of some kind, various degrees right now, everybody's got something going on. If I told you that what you're going through right now, that thing you're, you're considering an affliction or a trial, if I told you God ordained that and was using it for your good and his glory right now, would it be easier to go through? It would, right? And if I said, conversely, if I said the devil's doing this or you made bad decisions or someone else did and that's why you're suffering, 
be a lot harder to go through. It'd be much, much harder to go through. What if I told you that the answer to that shouldn't matter in how we respond to it? If we only knew that answer, we could respond appropriately, right? This is where a hallelujah would come up. <laughs> if, if we only knew whether it was God or the devil, we could respond appropriately, right? Hmm. As a disciple of Jesus Christ, our response to those situations shouldn't matter on what that answer is because we can't always know that answer. And thankfully, it doesn't matter in how we should respond. Remember this scripture from Romans? We've, various people have taught on this forever. Romans 8, 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. Often quoted, often taught about, and for the most part, fairly well understood. But I want to ask you the question, okay, whose purpose? His purpose it's capital H, so we know there's no doubt it's God's purpose. But who gets to decide what that purpose is and what it looks like? I think it's not a surprise. God, yes, God is the one that gets to say what that purpose is, and it doesn't always look like we think. Our purpose, our common purpose of all of us, is to make the gospel of Jesus Christ known. That is all of our common shared purpose. And it's only possible because of that very gospel. Did you ever think of that? Our job is to share the gospel. And our ability to share the gospel is only possible because of the gospel message of Jesus. His resurrection from the dead, victory over death and all the schemes and the lies of the enemy, our ability to proclaim that to the world is only possible because it happened. I love that. But think about this. In the midst of all this, Job, going back to the context of, of Job 4,000 years ago, he had no idea of any of that dynamic. He had no idea there was a Messiah to come. He had no idea that Jesus was, was promised and was coming, he didn't know. Everything that happened to him was through the lens of God did this, and so I must have messed up somehow. And he struggles with that constantly. So in, the, in light of that, maybe a better question to ask ourselves is not who's responsible for what we're going through, but do you trust in God even when you can't figure out what the answer to that question is? Can you trust in God and his goodness, even if you don't know who caused what you're going through? Or maybe you know full well who caused what you're going through. Can you still trust in God and his goodness? This question, that question, gets right to the heart of what's causing this turmoil in Job's soul. See, he had always thought prior to this time that he's going through, he had a relationship with God. He, he spoke to God, heard from God. He certainly knew a lot about God's character. And he was really spot on in what he thought he knew about God's character. It's only the trials that he's going through and then, of course, the, the, the hammering that he's getting from his friends 
trying to convince him to fess up to this hidden sin that he's got in his life, all of those things are causing him now to doubt what he knew, doubt what he thought he knew. And so like any of us, when our apple cart's tipped over and we have to rethink what we thought we knew, kind of leaves us in this uncomfortable place. So this is where he is. Job's like, who, who can help me? I thought God would be there to help me through anything I went through. I thought God was on my side. God was for me. And now I don't know for sure. And we see in the, in the next coming chapters, we're going to do chapter 9 and chapter 10 today. We see that it's that struggle. I thought I could count on God to be on my side, to be in my corner, so to speak. And if I can't, who's in my corner? Who can help me to plead my case to God? This is where we are. So let's get in. Chapter 9, chapter 10. Let's see how Job deals with this conflict. So first of all, where we left off, Bildad, his friend, has had his, his say. He's had his turn. And basically, Bildad says this. God judges fairly. He punishes the wicked and rewards the good. Okay, Again, not entirely wrong, but just not the fullness. In fact, we know that. Job chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. It's our first, second scripture for today. Then Job answered in response to that, In truth, I know that this is so, but how can a man be in the right before God? This is right at the crux of what he's getting at. Now, we see this theology, this idea being asserted by Job, and I'm going to paraphrase Job's theology in response to this. Job's theology is this. God does what he wants, when he wants, simply because he's God. And if I had to pick one of the two theologies, that'd be the one I would hang my head on because that really illustrates the sovereignty of God. But it's not where the people's minds, where Job's mind, it's not where his friend's mind, it's not where our mind, frankly, goes a lot of the time. We want to try and figure it out. And thankfully, through Jesus, we have the Holy Spirit. This intercessor that you'll see, this advocate that Job is pleading for later on, we have that in Jesus, but they didn't have that at that time. And in fact, they were more in fear Okay, negative fear than awe of God. We see in Exodus, in fact, remember Exodus 20, I think it's verse 20, happened after Job, but the point is the same. The people of Israel had been delivered from their captivity in, in Egypt and had been wandering the desert, and God had provided escape for them. He was providing for them. Moses is hearing from God. And at one point in, in verse 20, they've seen what's happening. They've seen God speaking to Moses. They've seen the lightning. They've heard the thunder. And God's awesomeness speaking directly to Moses. And Moses comes and tells the people, hey, God's with us. In fact, he wants to talk to you. What's their response? Remember? They go, we'd really rather you just talk to him and tell us what he says. Because if we talk to him, surely we'll die. It's kind of that idea of like, you have something bad that happens. Do you want to talk to mom or do you want to talk to dad? I'll talk to mom. She'll be a little kinder and a little gentler. So they have this idea that God is their provider. God is all that. And they've seen his faithfulness and his goodness. 
and they're still like, oh, yeah, but I don't want that lightning and that thunder turned on me if I say or do the wrong thing. So they're still fearful of him. They're in awe of his power and his provision, but they're still a bit fearful on having that turn to him, turn on them. So again, Job continuing here where he's, where he's talking about how can a man be in the right before God? Chapter 9, verse 3. If one wished to dispute with him, he could not answer him once in a thousand times. In other words, Job is just saying, hey, even, even if I could stand in front of God and plead my case, what would I say? What would I possibly say to change God's mind? Who am I to question or argue with God? So he goes on, Job, in the next several verses, he goes on to affirm how powerful God is. And Job is not wrong. God, Job has a good grasp on God's character. And that's partially what's causing him all this, this internal turmoil that he's got. Job uh, chapter, chapter 9, verse 4. Wise in heart and mighty in strength, who has defied him without harm? In other words, don't defy God. So wise, yes, mighty, yes, but also a little terrifying. Be careful. Job's like, I thought I could count on God, but I'm looking at what's going on with me. What's happening? He can't reconcile that. So next several verses, I'll just read it to you. Job chapter 9, verses 5 through 8. Is it God who removes the mountains? They know not how when he overturns them in his anger who shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble, who commands the sun not to shine and sets a seal upon the stars, who alone stretches out the heavens and tramples down the waves of the sea. He is fully fully aware of God's amazing, mighty power. He has no, no doubt that God did all these things and God can do all that. Then why is God paying all this attention to me? Especially if at all it is, is just to hurt me. Hey, quick side note. We often are taught, um, from the very beginning it seems like, we're taught that God and science can't coexist. We're taught over and over again that if you want to trust in God, you really just have to either ignore or just forget about scientific proofs and aspects like that because those things can't coexist. We're taught that an awful lot. I've even said this. The Bible is not a textbook. It's about relationships. And I'm thankful that it's not a textbook because I've never read a textbook that is, excite, is as exciting and life-giving as the Word of God is. But, again, we're taught that in order to have an explanation of the natural world, science, the things that go on in the physical realm, we need to turn to secular sources, in other words, science. And those things really can't coexist. That is simply not true. In fact, the Bible does speak to those sorts of things, the natural world, not only the creation of, which we see in Genesis, but throughout this book of Job. In fact, Job probably contains more science, um, especially about creation and things, than any other book of the Bible. And it's sprinkled all the way through subjects like, if you were just to pull out some of the topics in science that Job covers, through, again, throughout, geoscience, oceanography, climatology, astronomy, zoology, 
and others are all contained within the book of Job. And he does it in kind of a conversational way, like it's just matter of fact to him. It's not a big giant revelation. We see in scripture where all of creation testifies that there is a God. Job is aware of this. And he knows things that there should be no way in the physical world for him to know. But he knows them because God has revealed them to him. And I'll point these things out as we go. If that's something you're interested in, by the way, I have had discussions with my friend Terry Cooper since he's here about potentially doing, I know I called you out right in the middle of service, about having a class. It's something that he's very passionate and very well versed about. This, this idea, it's kind of called apologetics generally, but it's the idea of how does the Bible and science coexist. And in fact, the Bible proves many scientific things and the other way around. So it's great. If that's a subject you're interested in, let us know. Put it in the chat boards or email me or just catch us uh, after service. Let us know because we're trying to consider whether we want to do a class like that going in the future. But let me share just one quick, just a short example. You could spend entire series going through this. I just want to share a couple short examples as we go. Job 9.9. Job 9.9 says, who makes the berries? Talk about the goodness and the majesty and the power and the awesomeness of God. Who makes the bear, Orion, and the Pleiades, and the chambers of the south? Job here is talking about constellations. And it shouldn't be a giant surprise that he's familiar with and talks about constellations. If you wanted to see stars well, what would you do? You'd go out in the middle, so the darkest place you could find, right? Well, I guarantee 4,000 years ago, the middle of the desert was dark at night. And so they're very familiar with that. When they were out tending herds or sheep or doing whatever they did at night, I'm sure the stars were just amazing. So they not only knew of constellations, they navigated by them. They had named them. They had these names, names that we still use today, by the way. But then something interesting here. The word, the phrase there, and the chambers of the south. Again, you have to do a full study, and we'll do that at some other point on that. But that phrase there... What he's talking about is the southern hemisphere and the constellations that are over the southern hemisphere, things that Job would have no way in the natural to know about. But yet he's aware not only that the earth was, is round, but that the whole earth was surrounded by stars, and there are things that he couldn't see, but he knew they are there. It's amazing that the way that he just talks matter-of-factly about things, and you have to look at it and go, how would he know that? It's incredible. So let's move on. Job continues talking about the power of God as we go through, but not in a David and Psalms kind of way. In, in the Psalms, David talks about the power and the majesty and the awesomeness of God in terms of he's my protector. He's, he's the one who will protect me. He's the one who will smite my enemies for me. God's power is amazing, and he's on my side. That's how David talks about God Job here, though, is talking about the power of God, but not in a joyous kind of a way. He's not resting in God's power and relying on God's power. He's cringing before God's power. Just like the Israelites in the desert. We know he's powerful, and yeah, we'd rather you talk to him than me. So Job chapter 9, verses 10 through 12, I'll read these to you. Again, talking about God, who does great things, unfathomable and wondrous works without number. Were he to pass by me, I would not see him. 
Were he to move past me, I would not perceive him. Were he to snatch away, who could restrain him? Who could say to him, what are you doing? In other words, Job is just saying, God can't be questioned, nor does he need to explain himself. But even if you could, how can you say that to him? How can you question God? Job 9.13, God will not turn back his anger. Beneath him crouch the helpers of Rahab. Now, this is just a continuation of that previous thought, but I want to point this out because sometimes people trip up on who the helpers of Rahab are. Rahab, you see that name throughout the Bible in kind of various contexts. What he's talking about here is this mythical sea creature that was around at that time. Rahab is something that they were afraid of. If you went out on the ocean in your, whatever your primitive boat was, you were worried that there was sea monsters underneath the ocean, and Rahab is the chief of those. Now, theologists, uh, theologians argue, is this Satan and his demons and different things like that we can discuss? Not today. What Job is thinking, this is a sea monster, and he's saying, look, if sea monsters have no power over God, what chance do I have? As terrifying and as powerful as those are, what chance do I have? Job then now, he kind of switches, and he, has, he just has this burning need inside of him to find an intercessor, somebody that can plead his case before God. Because again, he knows in his heart that he's innocent of the charges that his friends are leveling. God hasn't charged Job with anything, but his friends have. And again and again and again, and so forcefully, he's starting to second guess and go, maybe I am. But he wants someone to argue his case, an intercessor before God. And again, in context, he had no way of knowing that that intercessor was coming. Too late to do him any good in this instance. Job 9, 14 to 16. How can I answer him and choose my words before him? For though I were right, I could not answer. I would have to implore the mercy of my judge. If I called and he answered me, I could not believe that he was listening to my voice. Job revisits this main point, this point that he's just made over and over again, but still not understanding the depth of the point he's making. Chapter 9, verse 22. It is all one, therefore I say, he destroys the guiltless and the wicked. That's kind of Job's main point through all this. God does what he wants when he wants. And it doesn't always make sense to us. In fact, 2,000 years after Job, we had a guy named Jesus trying to teach that very same concept to people who still couldn't quite get it. Matthew chapter 5, verses 45, Jesus says this, So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Trying to get this concept across that we still struggle with today. It's not like now that we have the Holy Spirit, we all know this, this fact and how this all plays out. This is the sovereignty of God. The righteous and the unrighteous, sometimes things that happen in their lives look kind of the same, or they look backwards. And what we see with our eyes can easily be manipulated by our emotions, by the devil, 
And we get it wrong more often than not when we try and attribute what we see to whether a person is righteous or not. It's dangerous ground when we start doing that. For the next 10 verses, Job Job just starts despairing about his chances. Like, if I don't have anybody to plead my case, and I can't do it, what would I even say if I got to stand before God? He just starts pleading his case here. He even at one point accuses God of being just arbitrary. Like, you're going to do what you want anyway, so why would I even... Why would I even plead my case? And in chapter 9, verses 33 through 35, he really gets to the point of pleading for an advocate. He says, There is no umpire between us who may lay his hand on us both. Let him remove his rod from me and let me not dread of him. Then I would speak and not fear him. But I'm not like that in myself saying he couldn't do it himself. He doesn't have the words to say, the power to say, the strength to stand before God and plead his case. Please send me somebody, an umpire, who can be between God and myself. He's pleading for Jesus, and he doesn't even know it. This, I think, is one of the main reasons why Job is considered a hero of the Bible, because despite not having that intercessor in Jesus Christ, he is able to hold on to what he knows to be true. Now, he wavers. There are definitely some cracks in his armor here, but he's able to hold on to that without the strength of the Holy Spirit that we have through Jesus today. So with that in mind, with that thought where his mindset is right now, that pleading for an intercessor, he switches now. Chapter 10, we're going into from hopelessness, like why even bother? What could I say if I had the chance? Why, why do I even bother to do this? to go ahead, and he pleads his case before God. A little sarcastic. He kind of goes at God a little bit more forcefully than many of us would be accustomed to, and we certainly don't see that much today. I want to tell you, though, yes, God hears even our sarcastic prayers. God hears even our prayers that we offer to him in, in a hurt heart or an upset heart. Um, God hears it all. And I thought about this as I read this. So Job chapter 10, verse 1 says this. This is Job again. He's praying directly to God. I loathe my own life. I will give full vent to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. Side note, praying to God in the bitterness of your soul is not always the best avenue. But let me ask you, let me tell you this though. God doesn't care. Think about this. Those of you who have children... If your child is hurt, scared, hungry, confused, do you care how they approach you? Do you care how, do they, if they choose the right words and say things the right way, or does it just make your heart happy that when they need you, they turn to you? Father God is no different. Our words, we stumble over our words. We don't know what to say. We don't know how to say it. Sometimes our prayers are a little clumsy and we're like, I don't know. And I'm, I'm angry, so my prayer's coming out a little bit angry. God does not care about that. He just wants you to turn to him. Job is saying, though, he's like, I've got nothing to lose, so whatever happens, happens. I'm just going to blast it out. Here it goes. And we know this because Job is never chastised by God for his attitude. Sometimes God's like, why did you think that about me? 
We'll talk about that much later on. But God doesn't say to Job, why did you not come to me peacefully and quietly and submissively? He's never chastised for that. He just knows that Job was confused and hurt, and he turned to him. That's what God wants from all of us. Now, Job does seem to know. He's got to got this innate feeling of where that line is, how far I can push that before I flip over into sin against God. And he never crosses that line. Job chapter 10, verse 3. Is it right for you to oppress to reject the labor of your hands and look favorably on the schemes of the wicked. In other words, Job is saying, you made me this way, God. So anything I do, that's kind of your fault, isn't it? Why would you punish me and yet I see the wicked over here prospering? What are you even doing? He's really questioning. You made me this way, so why are you punishing me? And then he kind of turns a little bit darker Uh, Job chapter 10, verses 4 through 7. He's accusing God of being totally disconnected from what Job is going through. Have you eyes of flesh, or do you see as a man sees? Are your days as the days of a mortal, or your years as man's years, that you should seek for my guilt and search after my sin? According to your knowledge, I am indeed not guilty. Yet there's no deliverance from your hand. Job knows. Remember, Job knows that he's innocent. He's starting to waver, but he knows in his mind that he's innocent. So what he's doing, he's kind of sarcastically telling God, I thought you could see everything. Why can't you see that I am? Is it because you're so disconnected from what I'm going through? Because you're God, your days aren't numbered. Because you're God, you can't see as the eyes of a man sees. In other words, you have no idea what I'm going through pretty sure God knows what he's going through, but Job can't see that, and he certainly can't feel it. And in fact, he concludes, in verse 7, the last thing Job does is agree that, yes, God does know what he's going through, but then immediately says, why is there no deliverance then? So Job's in this place where he thinks that God is just doing this for amusement. That was a very common theme, in fact, through all the polytheistic cultures, If you know anything about Greek or Roman mythology, very common for those small G gods to just bat people around like they were toys. They're just playthings. They're just there for amusement. Job is not like that, but he's wondering, like, what I see looks like you're just messing with me, and there is no justice. Chapter 10, verses 8 and verses 12, your hands fashioned and made me altogether, and would you destroy me? In verse 12, you have granted me life and loving kindness and your care has preserved my spirit. He's saying, God, you are so good and you made me. Why is this happening? Again, Job is so short on answers and long on questions. Now, Job concludes this prayer that he's offering to God, not with a submissive amen, but with kind of another jab, another question of God's purposes. Chapter 10, verse 15 to 17. If I'm wicked, woe to me. And if I'm righteous, I dare not lift up my head. I am sated with disgrace and conscious of my misery. Should my head be lifted up, you would hunt me like a lion. And again, you would show your power against me. You renew your witness against me and increase your anger towards me. Hardship after hardship is with me. You can just 
think about, if you can empathize with where Job's mind is, he's just saying, if I was born just so you could watch my life of misery, why? Why is this even happening? This is where it gets really dark. Chapter 10, verses 18 and 19. Job finishes it with this. Why then have you brought me out of the womb? Would that I had died and no eye had seen me. I should have been as though I had not been carried from womb to tomb. That is a dark place. I wish that I was never born. And if I was born, just take me from the womb and put me right in the grave. It's that bumper sticker that says, first you're born, then you die. That's what Job's mind is. That's where he is. After all of this, his mind has come to this place. He is unsure of anything he ever thought he knew. The one thing that he knows now that this has all solidified in his heart, and we'll see it going forward through all of his trials, he knows one thing for sure, he can't do it on his own. He can't figure it out on his own, and he needs an intercessor. He needs someone on his behalf. He needed an advocate, and he had no idea how right he was except that he thought that his accuser was God himself. He had no idea of the dynamic in heaven, remember, that was going on behind the scenes. He thinks everything that happened to him is because of God, and he had no idea how wrong he was. But remember that question I posed back at the beginning, that if I told you our response as a disciple of Jesus Christ shouldn't matter whether... God is doing it, or the devil is doing it, or who is doing, who is causing the trial that we're going through, that it shouldn't matter. The only reason that we could possibly respond the right way, no matter the cause, and not to even really worry about the cause, is to understand that we're not alone to plead our case. No matter how wrong we get it, we are not alone to plead our case because we have an advocate in Jesus Christ. Jesus, our intercessor. He's not distant and disconnected. How do you, if you ever look at the ruler in movies or anything, you look at the ruler of a kingdom or wherever, whoever's in charge and they have a son. How do they always portray the son? Usually spoiled, entitled. He's sitting on a, on a couch somewhere being fed grapes and fanned with palm fronds. That's usually how the son of, of the ruler is portrayed. That's not Jesus. Jesus is not distant and disconnected, sitting on a throne somewhere, unaware of what we go through. He was born in the flesh to be God with us. As we go into Thanksgiving and then into Advent, it's so important that we understand this concept. Remember all the way back, and it was echoed in New Testament scripture, but Isaiah 7.14. Remember this. <clears throat> Prophet Isaiah talking about a coming Messiah. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Does anybody know what Emmanuel means in Hebrew? It means God with us or with us is God. Like Job, 
when we're in the depths of our despair and our mourning and our trials and our pain, what do we naturally do? We look for someone who can commiserate with us. We gravitate toward those people who are going through similar things that we're going through, and maybe they can, we can at least help each other, support each other, but then maybe you've got something to offer me, some way that you've navigated this thing. We naturally look for that someone who has been there and done that and can maybe understand. People ask me why Jesus had to come to earth and die. Why? Why couldn't he just pull a God card at any point during the whole story of Christ on earth, just pull that God card and save himself from all the pain and suffering and trials that he went through? Why couldn't he just do that? And the answer is just simply, it was so necessary for Jesus to come to earth in the flesh in order to connect with the human experience. In order to truly be our intercessor, he had to experience what we as human beings experience here on earth. And for at any point, for him to exercise his sovereignty, pull the God card and save himself from that, it would have removed that connection. And that's what, church, that's what I'm thankful for. Jesus took what we deserve and gave us literally what he deserved. That's why I give thanks. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for your son, Jesus Christ, that you sent him to die for us, to reconcile us to you, to give us victory over the schemes of the devil, to give us an intercessor who understood our human condition and to help us. Psalm 9-1 says, I will give thanks to you, Lord, with all my heart. I will tell of your wonderful deeds. The best way to give thanks to the Father is to praise him and thank him and accept the gift of Jesus that he offered. Father, we thank you. And for me, I accept the gift of Jesus, of his salvation, of the eternal life, the fellowship with the Father, the things that he died to give me access to. Father, I don't want to leave those on the shelf unused. Help me to live that in the fullness of everything that it was meant to be. Father, we thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, the worship team is going to play on. We have prayer team available. We have people in the back who would be happy to pray with you if you're here in house and you need prayer. Please see one of them for any reasons. At the crosses, you can leave a, take a note, write a prayer on a note card, pin it to the cross. We'll pray over those through the week if you would rather do that, anonymously do that. Please use our testimony board. If God has done something amazing in your life, don't leave it. The best way to appreciate a gift is to share it with others and to show them how good God is. So write it on a card, pin it to our testimony board. Let's take communion right now, though. If you're at home, grab your supplies. If you're in here on the table in the back, we have little single-serve cups. If you haven't already, grab them. Now, rather than to 
do the typical, I want to say, but just go through the, the kind of liturgy that we would say through communion. I just want to simply say that in this season, coming up to Thanksgiving, and then after that, Advent, and then Christmas, through the blood, through the body and blood of Jesus Christ, which is what communion represents, we can stand in fellowship with the Father, and that is why I'll be giving thanks this year. That is why. And so if you have your supplies, let's give thanks and glory to God. I want to read a verse to you, Colossians 3, verses 16, 17. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. And if you are thankful for that, take the body. It's the blood of Christ, the blood of the new covenant that washes us clean, gives us that that spiritual do-over that we all need every day. And if you're in need of that and are thankful for that, take the blood. So I hope you'll all join us as we go through our Advent series. And I hope you all have a most amazing Thanksgiving. It might look different than it has in years past, but that makes it no less reason for us to give thanks to God. Amen. Thank you, church.